0: The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and
1: Jonathan. Alicia Garza once said, we all lose when bullying and personal attacks become a substitute for for genuine conversation and principled disagreements. I'm Rick, and this is Not Your Typical Christian Commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective.
2: I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically
1: free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is our topic for today?
2: Well, Rick, our question is, how many baptisms are there? And our theme text is found in Acts chapter 19, verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus.
1: Okay, sounds simple enough. How many baptisms are there? Well, you just talked about one. Maybe that could be it. We'll see. Baptism is an enormous part of Christianity. It's mentioned frequently and seriously throughout the New Testament. While most Christians agree on its importance, we vastly disagree on its meaning and place within our teachings. Is baptism a symbol of what has begun changing in you, or does it actually change you? Is it a ritual of sprinkling, or is it a complete immersion in water? Should babies, children, and adults be baptized? What are we supposed to be baptized into? The Bible seemingly tells us two different things on that point. Is it just into the name of Jesus, or is it into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So folks, coming up in today's podcast, do you think baptism is absolutely required to be a faithful Christian? Many say yes, and many others say no. Getting this right is probably pretty important. In our second segment, we're going to look at where baptism actually came from. It has clear roots in the Old Testament that most of us don't even know about. In our third segment, we're going to deal head-on with the controversy of baptizing infants and children. There are strong arguments on both sides of this issue, but only one side can be right. And we will tell you which side we adhere to and why. And then, is there proof that baptism actually makes you different? Or does the proof lie in the understanding that's an important symbol of something else? In segment four, we're going to take a hard look at the evidence And tell you our conclusions and our last segment will expose some erroneous views about what we're supposed to be baptized into
2: so rick with all the questions surrounding baptism it is no wonder that there is so much confusion in finding clarity the good news is that if we pay close attention to biblical history and context we can find answers that are sensible and scripturally sound
1: and I'm so happy you mentioned my favorite word in that. <laughs> I knew you would be. <laughs> <laughs> Biblical history and context. It is just so incredibly important, especially with a subject as big as baptism. And folks, look, this is one of those subjects that has a lot of different points of view. We are very particular on how we see things, and we want to present that in a respectful manner to those who have differing points of view. So we're going to talk about other points of view, but we want to talk about them all with great, great respect. So uh, let's try to get through that this subject with that in mind. So getting started, Jonathan, first we have John the Baptist. Okay, that's kind of where you start when you think about baptism. You have John the Baptist and his mission, baptized to repentance. Now, the following scriptures seem to contradict one another. And these first two texts are the same event uh, from different Gospels. And Rick, here's what
2: we're asking. Is John's baptism for repentance only? If so, then why do these texts mention the remission of sins?
1: Okay, so let's go through these two scriptures, two different Gospels, the same event. Let's start with Luke, Luke chapter 3, verses 2 and 3.
2: Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests... The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins.
1: Okay, so the key phrase, John was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, let's go to Mark's rendition of the same thing. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5.
2: John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins.
1: So, Jonathan, those two scriptures really read the same way. Preach they the, do, Rick. The baptism of repentance for the remission of sins.
2: Yep. I'd, almost identical in that area. Right. Yes.
1: So, is John's baptism for repentance only? See, we say, yes, it is. But the scriptures, you look at those and say, well, wait, wait, wait. Well, what about the revision of sins? It's all together. It's all one basic phrase. First of all, what does the word for repentance actually mean? Let's, let's start to take this apart and put it in context.
2: Well, it means compunction by implication reversal—
1: Okay. And that's really when you think about John's preaching, isn't that what he was doing? He was going out there and talking to the sinners and saying, change your ways, change your ways, change your ways.
2: Yeah. And really focus on God.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Stop this other stuff and focus on God. So the word for repentance means that compunction, you know, kind of that, that, that sense of, man, I've been messing up. I've got something's got to change. And by implication, reversal, meaning a reversal of direction. So, what was John's baptism for? Was it just about repentance, or, as those last two scriptures said, repentance for the remission of sins? Let's go to Matthew 3.11, because these are John's own words describing his own work. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance,
2: but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire.
1: Okay, so in John's own description of what he's doing, what does he say? What was what, he saying? He's saying,
2: um, My baptism is for repentance, Rick, and he doesn't mention remission
1: of sins in his description. But he does say, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Yes. So he doesn't mention the remission of sins, but he immediately mentions Jesus. So that's kind of interesting. John's own description of his own work leaves out the remission of sins that Luke and Mark both added in. Just another view of John's work. And why are we, why are we belaboring this point? Because the scriptures seem to contradict themselves. And this is, important. This is an important exercise in understanding, really, I think, how to understand what the Scriptures are really saying. Let's look at Acts 13, 24 as well, on this exact point of what exactly was John's work.
2: When John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel.
1: Again, you don't see anything about remission of sins. No, nothing. And it's interesting, when John had first preached before his, Jesus' coming. So Jesus is mentioned in the context... And it's interesting. You have Jesus mentioned in the context, and John's work is always stopping at repentance. And so you got to say, well, why does why, why? Well, what does the word remission mean? You know, remission of sins or forgiveness of sin. What what is the, the meaning of that? Well, Rick, it means freedom, figuratively, pardon. Now that's an important word. When you pardon somebody from sin you're actually taking them and saying, it's okay, it doesn't count anymore. That's pretty powerful.
2: And just in the definition alone, Rick, my observation is, well, isn't that what Jesus' sacrifice did? Yes,
1: yes. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Because of one man's sin, everybody's born in sin. Because of one man's righteousness, that sin is pardoned. For every man.:
2: Makes sense. It but does. But it what? doesn't
1: tie in to John and what his work was. No, it comes after John and after his work. So John's work was a preparatory work for the work of Jesus. And again, we're, make, we're being sticklers about this point for a very important reason that's going to come up later in the podcast. and once it comes up, it'll be, hopefully it'll be one of those moments you go, "Aha, OK. This is a scriptural precedent where you have the scripture say something, and it sure looks like it means one thing, but when you investigate it, there's a whole lot more to it. So let's take a look at Jesus being the freer or the pardoner, if you will. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is Jesus reading in the synagogue from the book of Isaiah.
2: The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised.
1: Okay, uh, where, where did we have the repentance and remission and all that in there? Well,
2: Rick, remission uh, was the word liberty, and it was also... Deliverance. So the
1: word was in there twice. Okay. Just it just described a little bit differently. Yes. But the point is, Jesus, in looking at the old testament, is saying, here's my job to preach freedom to the captives. I'm I'm substituting freedom for deliverance. That's one of the actual definitions. And recovering the sight of the blind to set to pardon them that are bruised, to to set at liberty, to to actually free them and this is we we understand like you were saying this is the picture of jesus freeing humankind from adamic sin
2: and rick isn't luke here finishing his gospel with the mission of jesus i mean i think he's really making it plain um after his resurrection
1: yeah and so let's read luke 24:47 so we started out with luke at the very beginning of the book of luke and it says you know, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But Luke 24, 47, after Jesus' resurrection, here's what it says about Jesus and uh, in, in his work. And that repentance
2: and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem.
1: So Jesus is saying, this is what you do. You preach repentance and remission of sins. So we can see that at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke is kind of giving us the overview of what's going to happen because John comes on the scene. John comes on the scene as the symbolism of repentance. Repent, repent. Why? Because he who comes after me has the power to release. But you need to be in position to receive that release. So Luke starts out by showing you kind of the conclusion right up front, but it wasn't John's work to do it all. So sometime, go ahead. I was thinking,
2: you know, John is preparing the hearts of the people for Messiah. Yeah. They have been in expectation and they knew the timing seemed to be ripe for them to actually see the Messiah. So he was saying, get ready because my little work is nothing in comparison to the one I'm pointing to.
1: Right, right. But his work was while it it, it didn't hold a candle to the work of Jesus, it was a necessary preparation. And we'll see that in the next segment. It was a necessary preparation to get those Jews of that time in the right mindset to be able to receive the godliness that comes through Jesus. So all the fuss about the specific reason for John's baptism is because of this important point. Both Luke and Mark spoke of the remission of sins, but they left out, in the beginning of Luke, and the beginning of Mark, they left out the key detail that Jesus was the sole provider of this remission of sins. Now Luke, like you just read in Luke 24, uh, 47, he states that at the end of his gospel. So Jonathan, when we read through Scripture, here's something we need to understand. The Bible often focuses on the most important details of a teaching for the specific event it's relaying and it leaves other details out which can be elsewhere found out so that's the way scriptures work because it's telling a story that has already happened and especially when you look at the gospels we have to realize that luke is giving us the broad picture as he begins to tell the story and then at the conclusion of luke he finishes the story with one of the points he started it with and it's kind of like see this is where it started And here's the grand finish. This is important in understanding how scriptures read. And again, this becomes really important later on in our podcast. So folks, you want to stay with us as we move through the subject. So at this point, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at John's baptism and the reason behind it. And already a subject that seems like it should be easy is showing itself to have multiple missing parts.
2: So John came along baptizing everyone. Why did he do it? Was there baptism in the Old Testament?
0: We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in combo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now.
1: While there was no baptism in the Old Testament similar to the way John did it, we do have several examples of its origin. The important thing to remember is what happened as a result of all of these things. As we look into them, the key thoughts are cleansing and being made ready for something. Cleansing and being made ready for something. That, Jonathan, when we look at John's baptism... That We have to find out, where did this come from? Because, you know, you think about it. John appears on the scene and all of a sudden is doing this weird work of dunking people in the water.
2: Uh, The scribes and Pharisees were not in favor of this. They were saying, what is going on? This is curious. What does it mean? Themselves, they were questioning it.
1: Right, right. And they came to see, like, we got to check this out. Okay. So where did John—now, obviously, God, through God's spirit— told john to do this but where do you have the precedent for this let's look at the old testament and the establishment of the nation of israel because there's some really interesting things and we're just going to give two examples there are many but we're just going to give two today once delivered from egypt the people of israel had to be sanctified remember had to be set apart remember we, we talked about you know you're a christian but are you holy yes that whole podcast was about these types of points The people of Israel had to be sanctified to be able to go before God. Let's look at Exodus 19, verses 10 and 11. The Lord
2: also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And Rick Um, That word consecrate in this verse, I went to the Strong's Concordance to look up, what does that definition mean to really get it and understand it? And it's interesting, based on your last comments, it fits beautifully. Observe as clean are the first (laughs) definitions. And you were saying cleansing and being made ready was the the
1: key of what John's was doing. So in the Old Testament then, go to the people and have them to... Be, to be cleansed and be made clean, and let them wash their garments. And then in verse 11, and then let be, them be ready for the third day, because on the third day, they will be able to come before God. Be ready. There's right. that be
2: ready. <laughs> exactly.
1: So this gives us a sense, because you have the cleansing and the being made clean and washing of the garments. You have a picture for us that gives the baptism of John really something to stand on. So a critical part... Of being sanctified was being physically clean especially especially in the Old Testament this was preparation to go before God okay and again that was the Old Testament view every time the people were to stand before God they had to go through a cleansing ritual this is important and this is what John was doing in the New Testament John's baptism also shows itself to be a work of preparation it could not take away sin but it could prepare the heart of the baptized one for that privilege. And John, you know, one thing about John the Baptist, Jonathan, he was vocal. (laughs) How bold can you be? He was bold,
2: no doubt. And and
1: he said what was on his mind, and he said, you know, come and be baptized and repent of your sins. And he would get specific with different groups of people. Here's where you got to stop. Here's what you got to start. Because it was important to prepare their hearts and minds. So you can see John's baptism really does fit very well into this cleansing to be made ready for something. Let's go to the second example. In the law that Israel received, there was much detail about cleansing from infection or disease. You know, a lot of times, Jonathan, when we think about the law, we think about the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a whole lot more to the law than that. It was all built on those Ten Commandments, but there were 613 rituals and rites and so forth that had to be put in place. So we're going to read part of a really kind of gross scripture, okay? But it makes the point, and I left most of the gross stuff out. <laughs> but in Leviticus, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, no problem. In Leviticus 15, verses 13 to 15. This is about cleansing from infection.
2: Now, when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe. His body in running water and will become clean.
1: Okay, so someone with a discharge. This is this is gross. Sorry, but the Old Testament. It's interesting, you know. In in a lot of ancient history, I'm going to diverge for a second. In a lot of ancient history, when you look at Europe and so forth, and the disease that would take 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 whole cities down was beca- oh, yeah. because of a lack of cleanliness, but nobody knew it. The Jewish law. Thousands of years before that gave you a sense of when someone has an infection, okay, and when they finally get over it, you give them a time to be away from everybody, and then they wash themselves in running water and their clothing. So it gives you this incredible sense. Uh, You know the millions of lives that would have been saved if Europe followed through with these kinds of rituals? That's such a good point. It's it's an amazing thing, but it gives you a sense of cleansing. This cleansing wasn't not only detailed, okay, you know the running water, the seven days, but it was linked to their spiritual cleansing as well. Just as they had to wash with water first, so John's baptism was also a preparatory cleansing work, pictured by water. This shows the personal repentance that John, by his baptism, was illustrating, and then. After, but go back to Leviticus, after the individual with the infection goes through the seven days and washes with running water and becomes clean, what happens afterwards? Leviticus 15, verses 14 and 15.
2: Then on the eighth day, he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord because of his discharge.
1: So because of the infection and the cleansing that had been done, Then it became a spiritual cleansing as well. And, you know, Jonathan, one of the most beautiful words in Scripture is atonement, when -hmm. you think about it, to, to make something at one. And there was an atonement ritual of sacrifice in the Old Testament attached to the physical cleaning. So for a Jew in the time of Moses, it wasn't enough to just wash and be clean. You had to ritually be clean and be atoned for to be able to stand before God again and recognized fully clean. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus being involved?
2: Absolutely. It really does, Rick.
1: So this is the picture of forgiveness in Christ, this atonement. As the Old Testament priest offered atonement for the disease, so Jesus, through his sacrifice, offers remission of sins. There is no greater disease than sin. And so when we look at the work of Jesus, and he, his, his job was to sacrifice, to, re, to, to, to cleanse from that original sin. You can't get more powerful than that. So John's baptism was pictured in the Old Testament by these two things. And there are several other pictures. In, in CQ Rewind, the, the bonus material, we've got other examples as well of of ritual cleansing from the Old Testament. But it's a powerful illustration. Cleansing physically and spiritually to be ready to go before God. I, I just It just makes such such great sense. I want to diverge for a few minutes here, Jonathan, because something that struck me, and this was sent to me by one of our, our CQ contributors, was uh, some Muslim rituals of cleanliness. Islam is very much built upon a lot of what happened in the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament ritual and ways was, was, was copied, if you will, by, by, uh, by Muhammad in, in, in the establishment of Islam. There is something called gusol and that is a cleansing ritual and i wanted to play just a minute of what a complete ghusl looks like this is an explanation of a personal muslim ritual washing that was supposed is supposed to take place every morning uh they have a, a a a a shorter version if you don't have time but this is just a description listen to the detail it it really to me it's inspiring to see the the length to try to be pure and I, and I and i appreciate this very much so let's listen
3: as for the complete ghusl, begin with an intention to purify yourself from the major impurity wash your hands three times then with your left hand wash your private parts and anywhere else that is contaminated with traces of impurity then make a complete wudu just as you would for prayers. Then pour water over your head three times, rubbing and making sure that it thoroughly reaches your scalp. Some scholars said three times means once on the right, next on the left, and then in the center. And then pour water and wash the entire body, beginning with the right side, then the left, while rubbing it with your hands so that you are sure you haven't missed any part. So these are the etiquettes of the complete ghusl.
1: I find that fascinating. And again, you know, looking at that respectfully, you, know, you, you see a sense of making sure the details are fulfilled exactly and precisely. And the, the, the YouTube video goes on to explain that if you are wearing a ring that is really tight, you need to take that ring off so the water can get beneath it.
2: Wow, that's detail.
1: It goes as far as to say, and if you're wearing any kind of makeup that pre- creates a barrier between your skin and water. The makeup has to be removed because water has to touch every square inch of you no matter what. And that's why they do the thing with three times. I just find it it's fascinating the, 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 um, the extent to wanting to be ritually clean. And that comes from the Old Testament example that, that we just read. So it's fascinating. You know, there's there's a lot to be offered by the idea of making oneself clean. So, okay, back to Jewish history now. With Jewish law and history before us, we now look at how John's baptism worked. So here's the question. Did John sprinkle with water or did he immerse, did he dunk, if you will, with water? So, Jonathan, we're going to go through a few definitions of some words. I think this one ends up being pretty simple once you look at the actual words. The first word that we're going to look at is the New Testament word for baptism, and it's the same word all the time. What does it actually mean?
2: Well, Rick, it means to immerse, submerge, to make overwhelmed.
1: Okay, so to immerse or submerge. I don't know that you can get too much more specific than that. Yes, so
2: it was not a sprinkle.
1: No, no, to submerge something means it is completely, and, and, and you know, the idea of overwhelmed, it is completely overwhelmed by the water. So water baptism that John the Baptist, John the baptizer did, so it was John, if we were to take the definition of the word and put it into play, it's John the immerser, John the submerger, that's what he was, John the Overwhelmer with Waterer er
2: thing.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. Okay, Matthew five, uh, Matthew three six. Keeping the definition in mind,
2: and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their
1: sins. Baptized of him in Jordan, submerged of him in Jordan. Okay. And, you know and and somebody can argue, well, you know the Jordan River where here would have baptized wasn't that deep well you don't need a whole whole lot of water to to really get somebody submerged if you want to okay? You're right, so you know the idea is the submerging and and this becomes also important later on as we go into New Testament baptism because the symbol is incredibly powerful, this submerging mark seven four is another verse where we're we're talking about the um the word uh, that's actually for baptism, but it's not translated baptism in this particular verse. And when
2: they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables.
1: So except they wash. except, And so the idea of washing would be the washing of the hands. Now, I don't have the reference in front of me, but in Jewish history, when you washed your hands, you actually washed your hands all the way up to your elbow. Okay? We think of hands as just, you know, you know, when you tell your 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 your, your children well, we had our grandchildren over on Saturday, you know, and, and the big thing before dinner is, Did you wash your hands? And Dominic <laughs> will say, Yep. And then you say, With soap? <laughs> and, and they go, ah. Uh. <laughs> Back in there, son. You know, but you know, the idea we think of just you know rubbing your hands together underwater. Well, in 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 a Jewish setting, it was rubbing your hands and getting your arms completely wet.
2: It sounds like a doctor scrubbing in for an operation. Yes, yes,
1: exactly, exactly, exactly. It's the same kind of thing. So the point of this is that baptism to immerse, to submerge, to make overwhelmed is very specific about a complete covering. Of water. Next let's take a quick look at the root word for baptism. Now this word is not used for baptism at all in the New Testament, but it's the word that it comes from. And the word the Greek word I can I can pronounce this one. It's bapto. How about that? I can I can speak Greek. Pretty good, Rick. <laughs> yeah, and it sure. means to overwhelm, that is cover wholly with a fluid. So while the word is not used for baptism, the 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 the, the um the root word means to overwhelm, to cover, holy. Uh, John 13, uh, 36, one example of that.
2: Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when it had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon.
1: So Jesus dipping that bread in the the the, the, the juice of the meat, I mean... He didn't, he didn't sprinkle the, the juice over. He dipped it, and he submerged it into it, and then he gave it to him. So you get the sense that it's a very clear picture of what baptism truly is uh, from the standpoint of the New Testament. So our, throughout the rest of the podcast, we want to have at least one baptism conclusion for each segment. So Jonathan, what's our baptism conclusion from, from this particular segment?
2: John's baptism had Old Testament precedent. It was a total immersion to show heart preparation, repentance, for the coming remission of sins through Jesus.
1: Okay. Old Testament precedent. And this is important to understand. just, Just very quickly before we go on to the next segment. The Old Testament, that Exodus 19, verses 10 and 11, when you said, go to the people and consecrate make them clean uh, and have them wash their garments and then let them be ready to be able to come before God. The idea was cleansing. And John was saying, repent of your sin, be clean from your sins. So you have a clear, 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 clear picture that baptism and John meant cleansing. And it was all there for something That was to come afterwards. So this is important because as we lay this groundwork, we need to be clear as to what New Testament baptism looks like. And that's really where we need to get going to right right now. So it's interesting how John's baptism gave the people a familiar ritual, but applied it in a very different way.
2: If John immersed those whom he baptized... Where does that leave babies who are just spring?
0: Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated.
1: Now we clearly step forward into the baptism that is into Christ. It's here that we need to fully address Many of the discrepancies that plague Christianity on the subject. The baptism of children is particularly sensitive, but we believe that the scriptures are abundantly clear on what is appropriate, and by the same token, abundantly clear on what is not appropriate. So we're going to go take a look at this part of baptism, New Testament baptism. And Jonathan, there is a strong, strong divide amongst Christians as to should children and infants be baptized. There are many who say absolutely positively, yes, it's scriptural, and many who say absolutely positively, no, it is not. So let's put some things in order and kind of get the sense. We're going to look at, our, our perspective, let put it on the table to begin with, is no, it is not appropriate to baptize infants. Um, so let's go to those who believe it is, and let's try to listen carefully as to the Reasoning and the precedent that they put before us as to why they think it belongs. So our first soundbite is going to come from I am only a servant, a a Reformed perspective of why
4: baptize infants. Abraham is the pattern of the covenant of grace or the administration of salvation, really, is what we mean. The administration of free, gracious, unconditional uh, acceptance with God he's the pattern of that all throughout scripture and so it's articulated in Genesis 17 where you see the institution of the admission of covenant children into the visible covenant community into the sphere of administration of salvation you see that in Genesis 17 and uh, everyone all the male children are to be circumcised admitted into the visible covenant community and as uh, most of the church, for most of its history, has understood, that essential pattern has never changed.
1: Okay, the the uh, the the visual covenant and the community. Those it's it's hard to understand exactly what he's saying. You know, it's a little bit confusing, but he does say most of the church, for most of its history, has understood this. Well, maybe okay, but let's take this carefully. He mentioned Genesis seventeen. Okay, really, Genesis seventeen one through twelve is what he's talking about, and in the interest of time, we're going to break this down into into much, much shorter rendition of one through twelve, but we want we're hitting all of the high points, so we're going to go these selected verses, and this is um, Abram um, at ninety nine you know when when his life is about to change dramatically and the um and God is speaking to him. go ahead.
2: When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared and said to him, I am God Almighty. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And I will give to you and to your offspring the land where you are now alien, the land of Canaan. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, you and your offspring, after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old.
1: So again, those were just the high points of Genesis 17, 1 through 12. And it talks about um this Old Testament uh circumcision. You know, so it said that circumcision was to the Jews as baptism is to the Christian. That's what the, the soundbite was really saying. And this would be significant as this interpretation. When you look at Genesis 17, it says, okay, you you, you take the circumcision idea and you carry it over as baptism into the New Testament. Well, there were several things here. Uh, Circumcision was a physical symbol, an inclusive sign given in the context to Abram, whose name was changed, in the context of a name change and a land inheritance. So it showed the name change, it showed the land inheritance, and it showed all the children of Israel are going to be different. That's right. Now, does that mean that our baptism is the meaning of being different? Well, here's the issue that I have with that. Baptism is built upon Old Testament washings. Cleansing. Right. We saw that already. So to bring the idea and say, well, baptism is the the New Testament brand of circumcision, to me that's a little bit of a leap when you look at that particular scripture. It was a symbol— of being different than everybody else. No question about it. It was a simple symbol of being set apart. But baptism goes further than that, as we will see, the baptism of Jesus in the New Testament. The baptism of John in the New Testament, much more similar. Baptism baptism of Jesus, very, very, very much different. So the next verse that we want to touch on here, okay? The Genesis 17, a little complicated, because you're trying to draw from from a lot of things one point and say this means baptism in the new testament i have a, personally have a hard time following that this next verse is often used to show that the children are part of the christian church okay acts 2 38 and 39 this is peter at pentecost they've received the holy spirit and now peter has basically taken over and said to everybody, look, let me explain to you what's happening here, let me explain the merit and the power of Jesus, let me explain what you've done wrong by letting him be crucified on your watch. So Peter has been giving all of this explanation, and now the, the, he's got the attention of a lot of people in this crowd, thousands. And this is where we're dropping in, Acts 2, 38 and 39. Peter
2: said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself.
1: Okay, so Peter is saying repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So the repentance is there. But you got the forgiveness of sins because it's the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, okay? So he says, this is a gift, a promise is for you and your children. Children, Jonathan, when you think of children, what is, what is that about? Because there are those who say the children is your, your little ones at home.
2: Well, clearly this is talking about your children, future generations, future you know, you can pass this great news down and they can dedicate their lives too when they grow up. So <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me.
1: Well, and, and when you read the rest of the verse, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So he's actually prophesying about the calling in of the Gentiles, those who are far off. So he's showing this is for you here now, and like you said, for future. And, you know, the idea of children, what about being called? What about counting the cost? Those are parts of what Jesus, what, what Peter was saying is required when you are, are, are going to be repenting of your sins and following Jesus.
2: Well, Rick, when you're talking about counting the cost, you know, you think of Luke 14, 27, and 28. It says, bear your cross, follow me, or you can't be my disciple. <laughs> you must count the cost. And, Rick, that's a series of mature decisions how can an infant think and make decisions of such great magnitude, life-changing decisions?
1: Counting the cost. So the idea of baptism is attached to following Jesus. You just brought that on in that other scripture. So, see, for us, it comes down to a mature decision. Uh, and it comes... And it also comes down to, back to this Acts 2 scripture before we go a little further, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Everybody's not called. It says many are called, few are chosen. That's right. So there's, there's a lot of mechanics involved in getting to the point of baptism. It's not simply being born. I don't get that from this verse at all. Let's go, though, to, to Catholic Answers. What is the biblical basis for infant baptism? This is actually a talk show, a radio talk show, and somebody called in with the exact question, how do you prove scripturally that infant baptism is the thing that you should be doing? And so the host is about to answer this, that question from a Catholic perspective.
5: I, I will tell you, first off, the thing that really did it for me was, was the New Testament concept of baptism as the circumcision of Christ. That was probably the single uh, image that really lit me up, so to speak, on this topic. Now, if you go to Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, St. Paul talks about baptism, and he refers to it as the circumcision of Christ. Now, if you think about that for a moment... Uh, how old were babies when they were circumcised in the Old Testament? Of course, they were eight days old. Now, for those who argue that, well, uh, that's an Old Testament concept, well, St. Paul is saying baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision.
1: Okay, we ha- I've I got to challenge that conclusion. He's saying, Paul is saying, baptism is the fulfillment of, of circumcision. And he mentioned Colossians chapter 2. He mentioned verses 11 to 13. Let's read verses 10 through 13, but let's stop after 10 and 11.
2: And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over the rule and authority. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ.
1: Okay, so let's pause right there. Now, the next phrase, to be, to, to be fair, sa- is, says, having been buried with him in baptism. So you can see that this phrase, by the circumcision of Christ, is preceding the phrase that says, having been buried with him in baptism. But let's talk about what led up to this phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. This is the separating of a people called to follow Christ. And remember, in other places, uh, Jonathan, the, the called out ones, there's those lots of names that, that that are used to describe them.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, they were called uh, a royal priesthood, or the Church of the Firstborn, or oh. just a couple.
1: Right, not describing children at all. Okay. No. No. You know, this this royal priesthood, the Church, church of the Firstborn, it is a, a describing a called-out sense. So the circumcision of Christ, he says in Colossians, that uh, we're circumcised with this circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh. So circumcision is not here describing baptism. It's describing what goes into being able to be baptized by being set apart. Okay, it's not describing the actual act of baptism, but it is describing this circumcision of Christ. And later on, I'm going to read a scripture where it talks about, you know, the circumcision that's in the heart. That's what it's describing. Go ahead.
2: Wouldn't it also include being cleansed, being clean, set apart and being clean to be ready to. But it's not baptism.
1: See, now that sounds a lot like John's baptism.
2: Yeah, you but you're it's right.
1: not the baptism of Jesus. Because remember, John said, I baptize you with water, but he who comes will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's a difference. And if we're looking at the baptism of Jesus, let's keep the symbolism for the baptism of Jesus clear. So we've got this circumcision that is sort of a setting apart you know, to this royal priesthood and so forth and so on. Now let's read verses 12 and 13 of Colossians chapter 2.
2: Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions.
1: So having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised up through faith in the working of God. You're buried and you're raised up. And Jonathan, it's an act of faith. Yes. It's not something that's done by rote because you were born. It's something that's done as a result of an act of faith. In the context of Christian baptism, circumcision is a symbol of separation, sanctification, sanctification to be a basis for being able to be dead with Christ through baptism, because that's the way baptism is described. um, Having been buried with him in baptism, when you're buried, Jonathan, you're dead. That's right, exactly. (laughs) And it fits so perfectly because the immersion means you are overwhelmed, you are completely covered over by the water. And so, yes, we do see baptism as a symbol and it's a symbol of being buried with him. The circumcision of the heart is the is the readiness that the symbol of baptism shows. So that's why we see them as different. Now let's put um, on top of that Romans chapter two. I just alluded to it earlier. To Romans two twenty eight and twenty nine.
2: For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and has his praise is not from men, but from God.
1: So the idea is it's circumcision of the heart. It's the setting apart of the heart. It's the peeling away of the old earthly uh, intentions and replacing them with Christ-like intentions. That's what baptism is supposed to be showing us.
2: And Rick, I have a question. Is there one New Testament verse that shows any baby uh, ever being baptized?
1: No, there is not one. And Jonathan, that's an important point. That's a really important point. If you say that this is an important rite, it never shows up in the New Testament, ever. Now, further than that, Let's go on to the next point, because as important as that one is, I think this next point, I think, seals it in a way that is unequivocal. If baptism replaced circumcision, and that's what those who believe in infant baptism say continually, again and again, if baptism replaced circumcision, why, in the great debate of the New Testament, which is in Acts chapter 15, is that not explained or even mentioned, or even hinted at. Now remember, there was this huge conference at Jerusalem in Acts 15. This was about 20 years or so, I think, after the Apostle Paul starts preaching. So this is, you know, the the gospel is well established, and there's a problem. And it's such a big problem that they bring the elders and the apostles together to talk about it. That's how big this problem is. And here's what the problem is, Acts chapter 15, verses 5 and 6.
2: But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the laws of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter.
1: So those with the issue came to this meeting and said, Those Gentile Christians are supposed to be circumcised. That's what they said. And they're supposed to observe the laws of Moses. This is what that whole conference was about. What do we do with circumcision, and what do we do with the laws of Moses? Now, Jonathan, if circumcision was replaced with baptism, the logical only conclusion would have been, oh, don't worry, circumcision is no longer needed because now we're baptized. That would have been simple, right?
2: Well, it would have been. Is it, is it
1: mentioned? That's the question. No, and it's not mentioned because that's not what it means. That's not what baptism means. Baptism is not even brought up in this entire conversation. And this whole thing is built around the idea of, why aren't the Gentiles being circumcised? And again, if circumcision was the picture that was replaced by baptism, that had to have been the answer. Not would have been, had to have been. Here's the answer. Acts chapter 15, verses 19 to 20.
2: Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and
1: from blood. So when it says that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, trouble them with the laws of Moses, and trouble them with circumcision. Why? Not because we are baptizing; it's not mentioned. It's not the conclusion, but what instead they should abstain from things that are contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what strangled them from blood. Everybody in that in that conference agreed, and said we can work with this. Baptism is never mentioned, and Jonathan. Again, if you want to say that baptism is the New Testament circumcision, how do you get around that? Those verses that conference, which was pivotal for the New Testament. Did they not know what we know? Come on. We're talking the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter here. We're talking James, the brother of Jesus here. We're talking these individuals who were right there and understood everything. So what's our baptism conclusion here?
2: Children are not to be baptized, as it symbolizes disciples
1: dying with Christ. That is the simple clear answer according to scripture and the scriptures that we went through in this segment i think really seriously absolutely point us in that direction the understanding that children should not be baptized clearly shows that baptism has a really deep meaning
2: we just mentioned baptism as being a sacred symbol as a symbol what does it actually accomplish
0: rick and jonathan have been friends for decades and co-workers on this weekly podcast for just about that same length of time since they know each other so well sometimes jonathan has to rein rick in because let's face it rick can start an in-depth analysis at a moment's notice with all those facts stored in his head so thank you jonathan for keeping rick in check when you add your comments to help us understand on a non-professor level and don't shy away to ask rick and jonathan a question they love answering all of them at christianquestions.com and all our social media channels what's next gentlemen
1: now look, we we are not minimizing baptism because we see it as a symbol. To see what baptism accomplishes, we should first look at Jesus own baptism. Why was he baptized by John anyway, as he had no sin to repent of? Also, Jesus does later on in his ministry mention another baptism as well. What are we supposed to do with that? So, Jonathan, this is why baptism is a symbol. There are too many moving parts. For it to be something that is just simple and 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 um, clear with a few words, Jesus doesn't let it be that way. Jesus Himself makes it complex because there's so much more to it. So let's start. Why was Jesus baptized? So John, for, for just a quick a quick answer on why, what's just one obvious answer? Well, it
2: unmistakably connected him to John himself the Baptist John the Baptist
1: so and and let's look at that Luke chapter 3 verse 4 this is about John
2: as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet the voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the Lord make his paths
1: straight so this is the description of the work of John the Baptist and in this description it says it's the voice and John certainly had a voice
2: oh he did
1: He's crying in the wilderness, and that's where he hung out. And his message was, make ready the way of the Lord. How did he help the people get ready? He baptized them. Repent and get ready to be able to come before God through Jesus, his son. That's what the message of John was. So John is out there, and Jesus is going to connect with him so that the people can see that what John is talking about is, in fact, Jesus Christ, that individual.
2: But John becomes very uncomfortable when he's asked of Jesus to be baptized, yeah, isn't
1: he? Yeah, he does. He, and, you know, I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wait, what are you saying? This exactly. doesn't sound right. And, and that's exactly what happens. Matthew 3, verses 14 and 15. But John tried to prevent him,
2: saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted
1: him. So you're right. John was uncomfortable, and Jesus' answered to him is, John, and I'm paraphrasing, let it be, this is important, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So now you gotta think, well, what did he mean, fulfill all righteousness? I think this is an important an important point here. John didn't understand fully why, okay, but he knew that baptizing Jesus was appropriate because Jesus said so. Let's go to a an old testament prophecy and then go back to what this fulfilling all righteousness means. Psalm Mm -hmm. chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. Then
2: I said Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart.
1: I love that verse. I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. And the key, I think, to that verse is it says, your law is within my heart. Jesus, remember, he came as a Jew, as a man, and he fulfilled the Jewish law. He kept it perfectly. So, just as all those under the Old Testament law, remember a couple of segments ago, they were ceremonially, ceremonially washed, Jesus lawfully did the same to show his acquiescence to God's will.
2: Wow, that is a cool picture.
1: And, and it makes so much sense. Your law is written in my heart. I know the washing is necessary to show that I am coming before you, my Father. And then, of course, immediately once he's baptized, remember what happens?
2: The Holy Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, and God
1: spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the ritual that he kept, just like every other Jew, of washing, the washing of baptism, was immediately met with God's 100% complete, overt, obvious acceptance. And that is powerful.
2: And on a simplistic uh, view, if we're to follow him, we're to follow what he showed as an example, and we follow in baptism that symbol to be dead with him, uh, to be raised in newness of life.
1: Yeah, and, and actually we're going to get to that even in, in greater depth with some beautiful scriptures coming up very, very soon. So but so with Jesus' own baptism at the Jordan River, you can see that he was doing what was necessary to fulfill the law. because So, I am here to fulfill all righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful statement on his part? That is. That's awesome. So, now... Let's go to our next soundbite. This is from Unlearn the Lies. What does the Bible say about baptism? This individual is one of those who says that baptism you know, is not a symbol, but it is an actual rite that has to be done no matter what. Now, we have differences, but again, we want to represent other points of view respectfully and then go through our scriptural reasoning uh, afterwards. So just let's take a listen to this particular uh, perspective on baptism.
5: There has been a trend in modern Christianity which has begun to place little value on baptism and treat it as an optional token rather than a vital step in our faith, teaching that baptism is only a symbolic and that it has no other purpose. They claim that baptism is simply an outward expression of an inward act, and in many cases the altar call has come to replace the baptismal in the life of new believers. However, if baptism is only symbolic, then why did Yeshua command that all believers become baptized? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Why would our Messiah place so much emphasis on baptism if it was only symbolic? He placed it on equal ground with making disciples and teaching them to obey all of his commandments.
1: So, you know, he's got a very, very firm point of view, and you got to be respectful of that. He's he's saying, look, you know, we were commanded to baptize others, so why would we be commanded if it's just some simple optional token? And I I don't see it as an optional token, do you? No, not at <laughs> all. And and Rick, you, you mentioned
2: this at the beginning of this segment— we're not minimizing baptism because it's a symbol right. that doesn't minimize it.
1: Right, right, right. You know, and it's, it's the same thing with with the with the partaking of the emblems of uh, at the memorial. You know, the the, the uh, you know the night before Jesus' crucifixion. You know, take eat. This is my body. It was a piece of bread. It was a symbol of his body. Now, look, there are those who say it turns into the actual blood, blood and body of Jesus. The answer to that for another time but it's unequivocally no simply because the ransom was paid once. Simple as that. The bread, the blood was shed, the body was broken once for all time. It cannot be done again and again and again and again. It's already been fulfilled. So we take that as a symbol. And Jonathan, that is a huge symbol that is not some little optional token. So with baptism, baptism, It is an important symbol, so it's not just a symbol. It is a massive symbol of what we are, what our lives are to be about. Along with the symbolism of baptism, how would you manage this, these scriptures? Because Jesus talks about another baptism. So are we supposed to be baptized twice? Because Jesus says he is. John, I'm sorry, Luke 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 50.
2: But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished.
1: And we know that that baptism was the facing of crucifixion and death. We know that because that's what was coming up, a symbol. He said baptism, there was no water involved in that. There was a lot of blood, but there was no water involved in that. This is not the only time he mentioned that. This is our baptism too, Mark ten thirty eight.
2: But Jesus said to them, you did not know what you were saying. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be
1: baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, of course, the apostles say, yes, we are able. And his response to them is, oh, you will be. You will be baptized with that baptism. And, again, he's not talking about water, is he? No. No, he's not. So we get the sense that baptism is showing us something. Clearly, the language of drinking a cup, you know, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Is he literally talking about a physical cup to drink from? Or, no. It's the cup of his experience. So we have to understand symbols when Jesus gives us things as symbols and accept them that way. The language of drinking of a cup and baptism here are both very symbolic, voluntarily accepting the cup and enduring the, you know, the accepting the cup and the enduring showed in the baptism harsh trials that cost you your very, very life. So this is the power of baptism as a symbol. And to me, Jonathan, it, it supersedes baptism being a literal thing when we see it as a symbol. symbol. Absolutely. It, it becomes Absolutely. more powerful and far deeper. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12.
2: It is a trustworthy statement. For if we die with him, we will also live with him, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us.
1: Simple scripture. We need to adhere to what Jesus did. Do what he did as best as we are able. We can't do it the way he did, but we can follow in those footsteps, and we can falter in those footsteps, and we can fall down in those footsteps, but we can get up and be forgiven and try again. That's part of what this idea of a life of baptism is. Next scripture Jonathan, here's a symbol of baptism and it's loud and clear from the heart voluntarily going into death. I love this scripture and to me this scripture Jonathan is the centerpiece of our whole baptism conversation. Romans chapter uh, 6 verses 3 and 4 and and we'll, we'll pause there and just kind of kind of go back over it.
2: Or do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through the baptism into death, so that as Christ was risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And Rick, this is such a beautiful symbol of following Jesus. Now, you picture the immerser, uh the one there uh next to the person that's being baptized or immersed they lower them down it's like jesus is holding you and lowering you under the water completely baptized into, into death into death yeah. and here you are you're you're underwater i mean you can't use dirt as a symbol it, it, so you have to use water that you're you're dead then you're being lifted
1: up you're lifted back up and that's being raised So, therefore, we have been buried with him. That's what you're saying is being under the water. We've been buried with him through baptism into death. So it's telling us that baptism is a symbol. Yes, exactly. We've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, pulled up out of the water, shown a newness of life, so we too might walk in newness of life.
2: That's right. Such a beautiful picture.
1: And such a powerful symbol of the life that we are committing ourselves to live. Let's go to Romans chapter 6, uh, just a few verses down, 17 through 18.
2: But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness.
1: And again, freed from sin and, have, and, and, and stuck to righteousness. That's what baptism brings us to. You became obedient from the heart. The symbol, to me, is very obvious and precious here, because it really shows what a Christian life is supposed to be. Lo- being in the hands of Christ, really, just, you know, and when you're being baptized, and being lowered down backwards, you are helpless.
2: Exactly.
1: And you have to rely on your Lord to hold you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Again, more in terms of the symbolism.
2: In the days of Noah, in which eight persons were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
1: Okay, and again, it's saying baptism isn't to wash you, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It is showing... It is symbolizing this idea of wanting to be raised up in newness of life, having a conscience driven by God's Spirit, not by my own thinking. That gives us a higher, higher sense. So those are just some scriptures that give us a real strong sense of baptism as a powerful, powerful symbol. So let's go to one one last question, Jonathan. What what, what is it in terms of baptism being a symbol or, or, or something that actually changes you?
2: Absolutely, Rick. If baptism was the needed action for a life to change and receive forgiveness, why didn't Jesus ask first if someone had been baptized before he proclaimed them forgiven? Think about that
1: for a second. Now, you know, now this is in the days of John's baptism. This is absolutely true. But Jesus never brought baptism up when he was doing miracles. Have you been baptized? Oh, okay. Go go get baptized first. And then and then come back. Proof of that. Luke seven thirty-seven.
2: And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume.
1: Okay, and so we know that she used this perfume and anointed Jesus in. And it says, there's this woman in the city, and she's a sinner. There's no word spoken by Jesus to clarify or to quantify her, 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 uh, her, her baptism status. Luke 7, now just jump down to verses 48 and 49.
2: Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who
1: is this man who even forgives sins? Jesus didn't need the woman to have been baptized because he saw her heart. And so we get the sense that baptism really is, on every level, a symbol that shows us something Deep and powerful and profound. What's our baptism conclusion here?
2: Baptism is a solemn public action that testifies of answering the call to faithfulness unto death.
1: And again, it's a solemn thing. And it's about faithfulness unto death. The idea, in that previous soundbite, he said, well, you know, the altar call seems to have replaced baptism. No, 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 not even remotely close. This is a decision, and you talked about it earlier, about counting the cost, of faithfulness unto death. This is life and death. This is something you have to be really, really, really careful with. So the lessons from the symbol of baptism reach throughout our whole Christian experience. It is all so sobering
2: whose name are we to be baptized in the father son and holy spirit or the name of jesus
0: did you know about all the video content we have go beyond the audio podcast with all our on-demand videos at christianquestions.com slash youtube discover our moments that matter series the exclusive cq kids releases and much more see new videos every week subscribe share like and give us your comments at christianquestions.com slash youtube Now, I'll throw the mic back to Rick and Jonathan.
1: And here lies yet another question that seems very hard to answer. When given instructions about how to baptize, some say Jesus gave instructions that the apostles did not follow. This would seem odd. Why would they follow what the risen Lord had said? Was it not important? Did they forget? Well, what are we talking about? Okay, let's get specific here. And Jonathan, I found found this whole thing very fascinating in terms of, you know, my own preparation for this week's podcast. Jesus specific instructions given when he was ascending up to heaven. So, I mean, this is this is a, a real pivotal point in world history. Matthew 28 verse 19.
2: Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the
1: Son and the Holy Spirit. That seems pretty simple in terms of explanation, right? Very clear and concise. Yes. absolutely. Baptize, make disciples of all nations. Okay, now it doesn't mean that you're to turn the entire nations into disciples. Mean make disciples within all of na- all nations. Okay, correct. It's, okay, but it's baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's an instruction. That Jesus gives. Now, there are some that look at that verse and say, well, that verse actually doesn't belong, that part of the verse. I looked into the reasoning and it's incredibly flimsy, frankly. Um, it doesn't have any real manuscript uh, support whatsoever. Uh, but here's the problem you see this instruction, okay, and this is why we have an issue that needs talking about. We see this instruction baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You never see that done in the New Testament. You never see those words repeated like that. You never see it referred to like that ever again. Never in the New Testament are those words again actually recorded. Here is where the questioner comes up, and here's where the questions come into play. Peter at Pentecost, Acts 2.38. We're just going to zip through these, and we'll explain them one at a time. Acts 2.38, what did he say? Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter, when he was with Cornelius in Acts 10, 48. And
2: he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ.
1: Again, not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul at Ephesus, Acts 19, 5.
2: When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus.
1: Uh, You see the trend? I do. Okay, and then finally, um, well, not finally, Paul to the Romans in Romans 6, 3.
2: All of us all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus
1: and then Peter and John visiting Samaria in Acts 8:16
2: Only they had been baptized into the name of the Lord
1: Jesus okay so you have five verses and that's a lot It is Rick that talk about being baptized into the name of Jesus into the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus into the name of Christ Jesus on and on and on not once do we see in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. What are you supposed to do with that? Remember back in the first segment, we made this big issue (laughs) about repentance for the remission of sins and having some details left out because the story is bigger? Let's remember that as we go through the answering of these questions. Let's look at each of these five scriptures. We're just going to take the Romans 6-3 scripture first because it's a scripture in principle. The others are talking about specific events and But Romans 6.3 is actually just talking about principle, and I think we need to start there. But remember, as we go through this, the way the Scriptures read, oftentimes all of the details are not repeated, only the most important details for that specific event. Let's start, Paul to the Romans, Romans 6.3.
2: Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death?
1: Now, Because this specific scripture does not recount any specific baptism event, it shows us the principle of being baptized into Christ. And Jonathan, to me, that's a clarifier that works alongside of in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The principle is being baptized into Christ, baptized into his death. So there's two parts that we need to be really careful of.
2: So it's talking about baptism, but it's not performing a baptism.
1: Right. And and it's also talking about being baptized into his death. It doesn't preclude being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into the death of Christ. We just need to understand that. Why isn't all of that mentioned? It's not necessary to mention because there's no specific baptism being referred to here, okay. That's one. All right. That's the simplest one. Now let's get okay. <laughs> let's get more complicated as we go. Peter at Pentecost, and and we talked about these verses earlier, uh, and he's talking to a, a, an entirely Jewish audience, and the Holy Spirit has just come upon them miraculously, and Peter is speaking for the very first time, as a spirit-begotten individual, and he's preaching to the crowd and telling them to repent and come to Jesus and follow him and and and, and to change their lives. So P, uh, Peter at Pentecost, Acts 2.38, let's just read the verse again. Peter
2: said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the
1: forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now he says, Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Why does he not say, Be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins? Why doesn't he say that? Why does he say in the name of Jesus Christ?
2: Well, Rick, wasn't the key point um, that was being taught here was raising
1: them up from the law and turning them towards Christ? Yeah, see... They did not have any understanding whatsoever of anything outside of the Jewish law. Exactly. The Jewish law was the only way to get to God. Check your history. It had been that way for thousands of years. Now, all of a sudden, Peter, this guy, is standing there after this man named Jesus had 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 lived— Uh, preached for three and a half years, was crucified, and then they talked about him being raised from the dead, which might have been suspicious to a lot of people. And this guy, Peter, is talking about this man, Jesus, being raised, and he's saying, he's the one. He is your Messiah, and you missed it. You need to come follow him now. Here's how you do it. You come and you be baptized into his name, taking them away from the law, and bringing them to Jesus. And the
2: miracle of the Holy Spirit was the eye observing, wow, God's power
1: is right before us. Right. Right. This is it. Yeah. And the other part about that is the miracle of the Holy Spirit means that Peter absolutely was speaking words that were 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 given to him by God. So right. by not saying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he didn't forget. It didn't slip his mind. It was not the important detail at the time. He was describing moving from the law to moving to Jesus. And that Jonathan, at that time, that was an enorm- enormous thing. Acts chapter 15, we talked about it. They, they couldn't get it through their heads. What do you mean, don't keep the law anymore? What are you talking about? And Peter is showing them. It comes because Jesus is now the centerpiece of everything, not the Mosaic law. So, that was Peter at Pentecost. Let's go to Peter with Cornelius. Aha! Now, this is a Gentile guy, so this is a little different. Acts uh, chapter 10, and let's read 47 and 48.
2: Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ.
1: So now you say, okay, time out. You just said in the previous one, it was all about the Jews who were following the law, and that's all they knew, and they had to be shown Christ. Cornelius is a Gentile. So what do we do with that?
2: Well, Rick, the same point here is the focus. Cornelius was adhering to Judaism from a distance, right? Yes. But Peter showed him that Jesus was now his center and not the law that he had watched for years and years.
1: Cornelius was following after Judaism. He was dedicated because he loved God. And remember the beautiful scripture about you know the the uh, the, uh, the the angelic visit that Cornelius has and says, "Your prayers have gone up as a memorial before God." Yes. And what it was saying is, you have been working at honoring God throughout your entire life, adult life here, and now you're going about to see the the, the fruition of that because now God is going to answer that prayer. And so his mind needs to be changed as well, because he was following Jewish thinking, Jewish rights, Jewish traditions. And he needed to be raised up to the fact that it's not about the law that you have honored so well, it's about Jesus Christ. And he got it immediately. Immediately. And that's the beauty of his conversion. But it was the same thing, Jonathan. You didn't need to mention those other pieces, because that wasn't the most important thing at that point. That's right. Let's go on to the next one. Paul at Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verses 4 and 5.
2: Paul said... John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus.
1: Okay, so, you know, you, you, it's hard to say. This is probably a primarily Jewish audience, probably, but we don't know. Okay, so I'm not going okay. to throw it in there. So how do you take that? Okay, he says, you know, um, Coming after him, so when they heard this, I'm sorry, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why doesn't it say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit?
2: Well, again, Rick, simply referring once more to the most important thing, the
1: difference between the law and Jesus. And he's showing us that because he's comparing John's baptism. It says in verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. You now need to be baptized into Jesus and not with John's baptism." so he's taking them from one to the other and that's the most important thing the words of actual baptism were not being spoken here but the principle was being being laid out john
2: said i must decrease right. while he increases right right
1: so we have these 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 examples and each time there is a clarity that's being established in the scriptures It is not undermining what Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 19, but it is showing us the importance of making Jesus the centerpiece. The last example is Peter and John visiting Samaria, Acts 8, verses 14 through 16.
2: Now when the apostles that were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they came down, prayed for them, that they might receive the holy spirit for as yet it was fallen upon none of them only they had been baptized into the name of the lord jesus
1: okay and again you know you have the omission of those other things and into the name of the lord jesus so so jonathan how do we how do we begin to put this one into order as well
2: Well, this is tricky, Rick. Um, The point is that Samaritans were kind of nominally Jewish, and they were unequivocally pointed
1: to Christ and not the law. So the important thing in all of these examples was pointing to Jesus above the law and for the samaritans those in samaria you know there was a lot of bitterness between the samaritans and the jews that's right thus the parable of the good samaritan jesus showing us to melt the 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 preconceived notions and accept people for what they you know what they can be there's a novel idea to apply to our world right here today just Amen. <laughs> just, just a sideline <laughs> okay um, but you know so you they understood that god uh, you know what was had worked with the Jews, you know, and they had different interpretations. But Paul is bringing them clearly, unequivocally to Jesus as the center. Okay, that's what's being explained here. So there's some really important points that we need to to wrap this up with, Jonathan. What's the first one?
2: No actual act of baptism is revealed in any of these accounts, Rick.
1: We believe the words of Jesus were cited. Okay. Every one of these accounts, you are not watching or or having it recorded the actual baptism of someone. You're having recorded the event that they were baptized. So it's giving you a description of what's going to happen, but it's not describing the event uh, blow by blow, for instance. You, you follow me on that?
2: Absolutely.
1: So it's not showing you an actual baptism. It's not showing you what's being said. It's being said that it's the name of Jesus. That's the most important thing. That's the key, because he fulfilled the law, which was the only way to get to God. Next point that's really important on baptism.
2: There should never be any baptism
1: into any church or group, only into Christ. And folks, if you have been baptized into a church or into a group, honestly and truly, you'd better think again. That is not scriptural. As we can see through all these scriptures, it's baptizing into Christ. And if a church tells you, well, you know, you know, you become a member of our church in this baptism, no, 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 you're supposed to become a member of Christ. And if it's anything but, then I would seriously question it and say, wait, 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 what's happened here? And perhaps it may be appropriate to be baptized again into Christ sacrificially into death. So, Jonathan, how do we look at this? Let's, let's try to sort of sum this up for the average listener, saying, okay, Jonathan and Rick, when you look at baptism, how do you, how do you see it f- playing out?
2: Well, we believe the following words in the Scripture, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, by this authority I baptize you in symbol into Christ, is scriptural.
1: That covers all of it. That covers everything we just described and covers everything that, the, that that Jesus commanded, and so that's how we look at all of this and folks, baptism, if you were baptized you know and, and it was a kind of like a, a happy occasion but you didn't understand it, that's not baptism unto death and it, it would be I think appropriate to get rebaptized by in, in, in a place where baptism unto death is really understood. What's our baptism conclusion here?
2: Jesus is the centerpiece. Our baptism brings us into Christ, not some church or organization. And that is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
1: Okay, so it is a simple, clear-cut explanation that has a lot of scriptural background and support. Baptism is a holy, sacred symbol of the most important decision— that any of us can make in our lives no matter what we do no matter what we say and think the decision to walk in the footsteps of Jesus supersedes everything the symbol of baptism walks us through being in the hands of Christ being brought down into death symbolizing dying with him being under the water symbolizing being buried with Christ and then being raised up to newness of life to walk by God's grace with his spirit folks that is the power of what baptism truly brings to us. Let's take that and the scriptures and rejoice in the incredible privilege that we have to die with Jesus. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, baptism is critical. Make sure you see it clearly. Think about it. Folks, listen. We want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us, review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming in next week, Jonathan, I don't have the title in front of me, but we're talking about does science actually prove there is a God? This you don't want to miss.